2009, September 23rd. Today is the inaugural lecture of Astronomy 141, Life in the Universe, being taught autumn quarter 2009 at The Ohio State University. Today's lecture will be an overview of the course and an introduction to the material we'll be talking about through the rest of the quarter. Then let's begin. Well, again, let's actually get down from, from doing business to actually getting into the topic of the class. Today is not a day you need to feel like you keep notes. Today is just a quick introduction. What is this class about? And what is the questions we're trying to answer with this class? What's the point of this inquiry? I can summarize what this class is about in one single question. An ancient question that mankind has probably been asking ourselves as long as we were able to ask the questions. Are we alone? Now, we often ask that question when, you know, the way people moved about was to go from one place to another under human muscle power. Is there anybody living over on the other side of that mountain or in the next valley over? Do they talk like me? Do they like me, yes or no? Am I going to have to fight them or flee from them, or maybe they are a source of spouses? Who knows? But as we've gone on, we've begun to ask the question, are we alone in the universe? Is the Earth the only place with life, or are there other places with life in the universe? How do we begin to ask that question? This is a very old question in astronomy. In fact, as we're going to see in Friday's lecture, when we get into the basic ideas behind this class, this is a question which has been asked now in recorded history for nearly nearly 4,000 years. And it's one for which we don't have still a lot of answers. But how do we get answers? And that's what this class is about. Now, we can break down the question of are we alone into a series of other questions that might be answerable. For example, is there life on planets in our own solar system? Mars, Venus, all the other places. Did life arise there too or just on Earth? Are there planetary systems around other stars? Like I said in some of my earlier comments, when I first started out in astronomy, the answer was, we don't know, but we think there are. Now we know of more planets around other stars than in our own solar system. It's an extremely exciting time in astronomy because we're really beginning to learn what is out there. Now the planets we're looking at are mostly gas giants at this point, but we are starting to zero in on the rocky planets, the places where water might pool and life might begin. It's starting to become a real scientific question with the hint of the beginnings of actually asking scientific and statistical questions about the frequency of life. Are these planetary systems, when they do exist, are they like the one we live in, or are they different? Are they different in interesting ways? Are we common or are we unusual? We don't know the answer to that question yet, but we'll explore it in this class. Now, if you get down to having those planetary systems like ours, are any of the planets like the one we're standing on the Earth? And how do we tell? How do we find Earths? And if we do find an Earth, and we find an Earth in the right place around its star, could life have arisen there? And this is a series of questions we think we can actually begin to answer scientifically. Ten years ago, this would have been science fiction pretty much from line one down. Now, it's an area of active scientific inquiry that has no hint of fiction in it whatsoever. Now, this is going to be a scientific approach to the question of life in the universe, and we want to know how do we get these answers? Well, in science, we prefer to actually get quantitative answers rather than simply sitting around and guessing and, well, you know, kind of making stuff up. We don't want idle speculation. So I can break that down into a series of other questions about how I begin to frame this inquiry. How do I go about answering these questions scientifically? What do I mean by a scientific approach? What do we need to know? What are the questions? What are the data we need? What are the facts we need to begin to answer this question? 
How do we structure our scientific inquiry into this question? Is it a theoretical problem, meaning I do the calculations from basic principles? Do I do an observational study? Do I need new technologies? All of the above? What are the interactions between them? What, it, what enables and structures our inquiry? Finally, once we get down to this, we ask the question, well, what are the various pieces of the puzzle that I'm going to need in order to understand and make progress? What do I need to know? And how do I need to know it? What is it the things I've got to figure out? Do I reach a roadblock where I say, you know, I really don't understand how XYZ works. I've got to understand that first before I can get to the big question. We'd all like to just have ET pop down in the middle of the room and answer the question for us. But, well, quite frankly, I don't think that's going to happen. So we're going to have to approach, we'd like to go directly to the question, are we alone? But we're going to have to go to it in stages where we feel confident of progressing in each stage of knowledge. And that's what a scientific inquiry is like. So what do we mean by science? There's lots of ways to define science. You've all heard about the scientific method, hypothesis, test, reproducibility, and that. I like to boil it down this way. Science is not so much about what we know, but how we have learned to confront what we do not know. Science is not a body of knowledge. It's not a body of beliefs. It's not a canon of things I have to learn. And when I demonstrate that I've learned them, they put a little, little halo, a little wreath on my head and say, you are now a scientist and show me the secret handshake. In fact, science is a process. It's not about the knowledge per se. It's when our knowledge ends, that's when science begins. It's how do I confront the things where I go, I, I don't know is the start of science. When you say, I have no idea how to proceed, how do we do that? So what does science do for us as a process? Well, number one is it's a framework. It's a conceptual and intellectual framework which allows me ways in which to how to pose questions, how do I ask questions of nature, and then how do I evaluate those answers back? How do I tell a good answer from a bogus answer from complete crap? Science gives me ways and means to do that. And we'll see example, we'll look at this by example through the class. Scientific approaches rely on data, verifiable, quantitative data and measurements. I don't just sit around making up ideas over a couple of beers. I need to go out and measure something, measure it again, show that my measurements are reliable. That has an interesting intersection between technology, which enables my measurements, and being able to interpret those measurements, which is back into this idea of a framework for asking questions and evaluating answers. The final piece of science is what I would call a, the practice of science. It's the practice of the critical examination of the validity of interpretations drawn from data. I can have all the data in the world, I can draw interpretations from it, but how do I go about telling, have I followed the right chain of logic to go from those data to this interpretation to that conclusion? And I have to be really, really critical on myself. Science is hard. It's not hard because you have to learn a lot of stuff. It's not hard because of all the math. It's hard because it's, it's kind of hard on the ego, right? I do an inquiry, part of my PhD dissertation is a good example. I was studying a particular class of galaxies. I came up with some really cool results, and I was interpreting what these results meant in the context of the theory of these giant black holes and galaxies. I was doing pretty good, and there was this one object where I saw it, yeah, it's kind of marginal. I think it's this way. I think that's what this configuration this picture is telling me. A few years later, after the Hubble Space Telescope was launched, a paper came out showing that my interpretation was just plain wrong. I was just, I was just wrong. And a friend of mine said, hey, did you see uh, Wilson and so-and-so's paper? How do you feel about that? And I said, well, I thought that paper was really cool. He thought I was going to be pissed because someone proved my stuff wrong. I said, well, you know kind of sucked I had the wrong answer, 
someone found the right answer following up on the work I did. I learned something by finding out I was wrong. Science is like that. Science questions are not things we confirm. We try to basically destroy our own ideas. We try to find where we are wrong, and that's how we test our ideas. It's really hard on the ego to be proven wrong. Some people, even good scientists, have troubles with that, and they get into arguments. A lot of the arguments in science come down to ego, sadly. But in reality, science proceeds because we learn to let go and say, you know, I was wrong. I learned something. One of the best scientists I ever knew, the late Hans Liebmann, once commented that if you don't stand up and ask a stupid question and make a complete damn fool of yourself, you will never learn a thing. He was right. It's tough. It's hard on you, but that's how it works. So let's come back to one of the questions that's really a big motivator. Life in the universe. When people find out I'm an astronomer, this is I call this the cocktail party effect, although I've never been invited to a cocktail party, so I'm not sure if it actually works in that context, but it seems to work in other parties. Oh, you're an astronomer. They want to know about, number one, they want to know something about astrology, which I usually get rid of right away. They want to know about black holes, and they want to know about extraterrestrial life. Lately, extraterrestrial life has been kind of the number one question. Do you think there's life on other worlds? It's like the number one question with a bullet. Well, what are the kinds of questions we can ask to get at this? I can say, I don't know. And because the answer is, I don't know if there's other intelligent life elsewhere. So how do we begin to approach that question scientifically? Well, the first thing I can do is I can fall back on a different question. What are the requirements for life? What are the basic prerequisites you have to meet in order for life to arise? Let's start with figuring out what those are, and then let's go look where places are where those prerequisites exist. That kind of narrows the search down. The universe is big. Where can life exist? Where can it happen? Maybe we can look around the Earth. The Earth has a wide range of environments, some of them extreme, extreme in the extreme. Where is there a is there a place on Earth where life can't happen? That's an interesting question. That might tell us something. Now we go out into the solar system. Are there places where life has arisen in the solar system? Are there places where we think life could never arise in the solar system? Why? Because they don't meet the requirements or something else? We can actually actually answer these questions. Now, if we get life. At what point is life capable of communicating with us, right? It's easy for us to communicate with each other. We've never spoken to another species. Oh, yeah, there have been hand sign, sign language with monkeys and, 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 and chimpanzees and things like that. But really, we really have not carried on a conversation with any other species but Homo sapiens. So what does it mean to communicate, and how do we frame that? That's a difficult question. Just because something is alive, is it intelligent? Look at a crowd. Right? These are human beings, and sometimes I really wonder about crowds. Well, what's required for intelligence? How do we define intelligence? If I'm going to go looking for something, how do I know it's there? Once I get life, how long does it take to develop? Does life start immediately as conditions are right, or does it take time? Are there lessons we can look at from the Earth's geologic past that give us some idea of what those time frames are? And then a question which we kind of like to know is, once you get an intelligent civilization, how long does it last? How long have we been a civilization, an intelligent? Well, we've only had writing, interestingly, for about five or 6,000 years. The Earth is 4.5 billion years old. 4.5 billion is 4,500 million. So we've only had writing for one millionth the history of the Earth. How much longer are we going to last? 
There was a time when I was growing up at the height of the Cold War when I wondered if I would live to see adulthood, whether we would have a thermonuclear war that would actually take out all of humanity. It could happen. We have the instrumentalities to destroy, destroy life on our planet. The rock will remain. <laughs> do other civilizations reach that impasse as well? And do they make it through or not? So there's lots of interesting questions. So what we are going to explore in this class is what is the progress we have made in the scientific inquiry of answering the question, are we alone? We're going to approach this from a number of lines. We're going to start out next week by asking what the cultural and historical background of this question is. How does that cultural and historical background inform or perhaps even bias our inquiry? After all, we have to start in some context and scientists are part of the culture. We come with the same preconceptions and biases as everybody else. Do those biases limit us or enable us? And that's an interesting question to approach. Once we get through that sort of background, how did we reach this point? Why is it at the beginning of the 21st century it is sensible to talk about life on other worlds? Why isn't this total speculation what's this doing in a university curriculum? I hope to demonstrate that over the next week. Next, we're going to start at home. What is the nature of life on the Earth? Let's understand life as we understand it as best we can before we go looking for it elsewhere. Then we start with the second layer of questions. Where could, once we've established what the conditions for life were and some of its parameters, could life exist elsewhere in the solar system? How, we have started that search. What are the results so far? Similarly, could there be life elsewhere in the universe? Given what we know about the Earth and our solar system, can we now take that knowledge outwards into the rest of the universe and ask where we should be looking for life? And finally, towards the end of class, it's an interesting, if you're going to talk about life, it's sometimes useful to also understand death. What are the limits of life in the universe? And in particular, let's, we're going to look at two cases. The limits of life on the Earth itself. Will life always be on the Earth, or will there be a time when the, when the, in the future when the Earth will become and stay lifeless for the rest of, of universal history? And what is the case, perhaps, for life? When can life arise? Is there a limit to when life can extend into in the distant future? Maybe life doesn't always extend into the infinite future. Maybe there's a stopping point. Let's see what our thinking is about that. So the breakdown is going to be as follows. This week, we're going to just sort of do a basic introduction to things, get us all up to speed. Next week, we're going to dive into the historical and cultural background of the question of life in the universe. And we're going to look at it from the intellectual context that we have built up that has brought us to the beginning of the 21st century. The Copernican Revolution and the discovery of where we are in the solar system. The chemical revolution, which taught us the nature of matter and chemistry. The biological revolution, which basically taught us about what life actually is and bringing up, of course, uh, evolution, biochemistry, genetics, and DNA that tells us something about how living things work. The geological revolution that sets the stage for how old the Earth is, the geological and climate factors that have affected the history of life through the Earth. And finally, the cosmological revolution that allows us to extend the history of the Earth and the Sun to the other stars and to the universe itself. This is why we live at a very special time in human history when the question of astrobiology, this combination of astronomy, geology, biology, chemistry, physics, and Earth and planetary sciences all melded into one, can begin to actually start asking sensible questions and getting sensible answers back about life in the universe. We're going to look at the origin and nature of life on the Earth. We're going to look at the geological and life history of the Earth. We're going to look at the role that geology, climate, and habitability have changed. The Earth may not always have been habitable. When did it become a place for life? What is the nature of life on Earth? What is its range and variation that we observe? 
What is the origin of life on Earth? We don't know the answer to that, but tremendous progress has been made trying to understand what the first forms of life are and what is the future of life on the Earth. Where is it, where is it going to go as the Earth be, continues its development? Then we're going to turn to the question roughly the other third of the... So one-third of the class will be spent with life on Earth. The second third will be spent, is there life elsewhere in the solar system? We're going to review the requirements for life we've learned for Earth and ask where else in the solar system do we find those conditions satisfied. We're going to concentrate our efforts on four worlds in our solar system, one planet and three moons. Mars, the planet, and the moons Europa, Titan, and Enceladus, which may in fact be the places where we think some or many of the conditions of life exist in our own solar system and which are going to be targets for future exploration. And then we're going to end up with a question of why is the Earth habitable but Mars and Venus today not? Because that's going to tell us where something about where you are in the solar system matters for whether your planet is habitable. That defines something called the habitable zone, and that tells us not only to look around other stars for planets, but those planets have got to be in a special place. It's a classic Goldilocks problem. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. We're going to see that problem emerge as one of the guiding principles for how we craft our search for life beyond the solar system. And finally, the last third of the class, we're just going to open up the doors and we're going to head for it. Is there, are there planets around other stars? And we'll talk about and review the discoveries over the last 10 years that have answered that question definitively. Oh, yeah. Yes, there are planets around other stars. Is there life on those planets? We don't know yet. But how are we beginning to craft the inquiries that will give us that answer? What are we going to look for? If we do find, if life is on those planets, can we ever hope to detect that life here from the Earth? Do I know where I might focus my inquiry? If we ever do get life, has life ever become intelligent? Will we ever contact another sen- other sentient thinking beings? If there are extraterrestrial civilizations out there, is it really even reasonable to think we can talk to them? And finally, I want to end up the course with this question of the long-term future of life on the Earth and elsewhere in the universe because it gets at the question of the, of the scarcity or the rareness of life. And we'll get a lot of these questions of where I should begin to look or whether I should be bothering to look at all. We've opened the door to a very, very vast topic. It's going to cover a lot of different areas. It's going to be a fun class to teach. I've never taught this class before, so I'm going to learn a lot in the course of, the, of it as well. I've already learned a great deal about geology and chemistry and biology that I haven't had to pay attention to in years. A lot of it's changed. We're going to be crossing all kinds of different information from all different kinds of areas. But we're all going to be concentrating ultimately on one question. Are we alone in the universe? And how do we answer that question? And over the next 10 weeks, we're going to try to bring ourselves up to speed on how we're answering that question and look at the hope that maybe one of these days we'll actually get a definitive answer. Any questions? Yes, sir. These PowerPoints will be on my webpage, um, which is given on the syllabus there. You'll be able to get a copy of these at any time. They'll usually show up. My notes and stuff will show up usually two or three hours before class, sometimes earlier, sometimes later. But otherwise, the material should be up in advance of the class so you can print out the notes and bring them to class with you. Yeah, question? Uh, when do you want us to have the textbook on? Uh, we'll start using the textbook on Monday. So you have this week to get your hands on it. Any other questions? All right, in that case, we will end lecture, and I will see you all tomorrow.